Friends, I stand here before you today to proclaim this good news. Resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. And we have all had our moments of the worst thing, haven't we? The thing we never thought we could recover from. The death. The end of a relationship. The loss of a job we were counting on. The diagnosis. The worst thing. We've all had them. I've certainly had mine. In the spring, about this time of year, five years ago, I was drowning deep in my own worst thing when another UCC pastor shared this quote with me from Frederick Beekner: Resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. And I grabbed onto that idea like a life preserver. And that is the word for us today as we take a walk on the road to Emmaus with a couple followers of Jesus, resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. So let us listen now for the word and the wisdom of God in this story from the book of Luke, chapter 24. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he asked, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And he asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him but we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And then they added, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning and when they didn't find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found just as the women had said. But they didn't see him. And then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the, to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And as they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus walked ahead as if he was going on. 
But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures for us? And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. And the eleven were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. And then the two men told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of God for all people. Last week I told you that an empty tomb is pretty ambiguous evidence for a resurrection. But it is an excellent invitation to trust. An empty tomb is enough to open our minds to hopeful possibilities, but it has to be cemented by a personal encounter with the risen Jesus. And that's what happens in the story this morning. For some of you, that story may be brand new. Others of you have heard it more times than you can remember. And this morning, I invite you to just let the story surprise you. Today, we are simply going to live in the story listening for a fresh word, and seeing what questions it asks us. So let's set the scene. It's still the first day of the week. We know it's the same day as the resurrection, although the followers of Jesus don't really yet know what to do with what they've heard. The women have received the news from the angels. They've shared it with the rest of Jesus' followers. And Peter has seen an empty tomb But nobody has actually seen Jesus. And people have regular life to do. So two people set off from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We don't know where Emmaus is, but the story says it's about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And who are these travelers? They are Cleopas and a companion. Very likely that companion would be his wife, And since there's another story that refers to a a couple named Clopas and Mary, we're going to call her Mary because everyone in the story deserves a name. So Cleopas and Mary are probably going home. They are disciples of Jesus, and they've been in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They came happy and excited. Barely a week ago, they were waving palm branches and singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, as Jesus entered the city. And they were there when everything fell apart. Possibly they were even standing beneath the cross. They are close enough to the Jesus movement to be among those who heard the testimony of the women and Peter. That the Passover festival is over. And Jesus is dead. And regular life looms large. So they go home. But they can't get all of this out of their heads. Who could? The whiplash of emotions of the last week has them reeling. So as they walk along, they talk. 
When humans experience confusing tragedy, we often have a desperate need to talk about it, to try to make sense of it. Question for you. What is that thing in your life that you need to talk about, but you haven't? So Cleopas and Mary are talking, and when a stranger joins them and asks what they're talking about, here's what they tell him. We are talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. Nobody ever forgets where Jesus came from. He never gets away from the stigma of his birthplace. He never loses that accent. But Luke has another reason for reminding us of Nazareth. It's also where Jesus announced his ministry, that the day of the Lord's release has arrived, and he got such a dramatic reaction from his audience. When he declared that the kingdom of God was for the right people and the wrong people, the right people tried to kill him. And now here, near the end of the story, after people have actually succeeded in killing Jesus, Luke wants us to remember how it all started. And so he reminds us that Jesus came from Nazareth. This Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet. I'm getting rained. Okay, he's the boss. This Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet. One who has come in the long tradition of calling the people to their true identity as those loved by God and commissioned by God to be a blessing to the world. Prophets are bad news for the religious and political establishment. They issue clear warnings about the natural consequences that people will bring on themselves if they try to choose an identity other than the one that God has already given them. Question for you. How do you feel about the identity that God has given you? Jesus was mighty in word and deed. His teachings were as powerful as his actions. What was his teaching? Well, in his inaugural speech at Nazareth, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to let the oppressed be released, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Language straight out of the Old Testament prophets, but Jesus got in trouble because he declared that the release was not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. The folks in Nazareth had never heard such a teaching before. And the book of 1 Corinthians says that the gospel comes not only with words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. With Jesus' words, he promised reward for those who will risk releasing and being released. And with his actions, Jesus demonstrated God's release. The blind received sight. The lame walked. Those who had leprosy were cleansed. The deaf heard. The dead were raised. And the good news was proclaimed to the poor. Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and somewhere along the way, Jesus' ministry captured the heart of Cleopas and Mary. They followed Jesus. They loved him so much 
that they couldn't let him go. Maybe as they were walking along before they met the stranger, they were sharing their memories of Jesus like we do at a wake. Remember when he brought that poor widow's son back to life right in front of the whole town? Yes, and what about that time he healed that hunchbacked woman on the Sabbath? I love his stories, especially the one about the rich man and Lazarus. My favorite is the one about the prayer, where that mean judge wouldn't pay attention to the widow. Nevertheless, she persisted and finally got justice. Remember how he always compared the kingdom of God to a fabulous banquet? I wish we could have eaten with him one more time. Unfortunately, these aren't their only memories. And so when the stranger asks what's happened, they also tell him how everything went so horribly wrong so fast. The elders and the chief priests had enough of this teaching about God's welcome and release. It didn't fit their agenda, and it threatened their power. And so when they got their chance, they took it. They condemned him, our innocent teacher and our friend. And they crucified him. Mary may have been one of the women who stood at the cross. Have you ever sat a death watch for someone that you love? Wondering if the breath he just took is the last one? Holding your own breath as you wait for the next one? Crying and not crying and not knowing why you're switching from one to another? Silently holding the other people who've come to bear witness to this moment? Mary had done that before with elders with her parents, with her grandparents, with the pillars of her community. But Jesus was too young. His death was too awful, too public. The moment when we cross the veil should be reverent, and they were mocking him and shaming him. And yet she stayed. The women stayed, even though their hearts were breaking. When the emotion was overwhelming and there was nothing left to fix, the women stayed. Mary and Cleopas, their hearts are broken not only because their friend died, but because their hope died. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The one to finally rescue us from Roman occupation. The one to put us back on top. The one to prove us right our Messiah. But obviously he wasn't, because now he's dead. Everyone knows you can't kill the real Messiah. They killed Jesus. Ergo, Jesus is not the real Messiah. Just one more in a long line of people who get our hopes up. We really thought he was different, but apparently not. Their only vision, their only hope, their only dream for how the world can change was for Israel to be redeemed in the way that they expected. Question for you. What is the area of your life where you have limited yourself to only one solution? Yes, and besides all this, if this wasn't enough, there's also this. It's been three days. And Cleopas and Mary may be remembering something in their back of their mind about three days, something Jesus may have said. But three days is also enough time for reality to set in. This is how things are now. 
And yet, this morning, some of the women in our group went to the tomb and came back with news that astounded us, knocked us off our feet, flabbergasted us. We are at a total loss to explain it. We are overwhelmed, confused, grieving, scared, and we have no idea what to think, so we're just going to walk home. And how does this stranger respond? Now, some of us grew up hearing the mean pirate voice in the Bible. And in this moment, Jesus says, Oh, how foolish you are! This morning, would you please let God free you from the mean pirate voice? Let Jesus be who he says he is. If my friends were hurting and sad and confused, even if I knew something that they didn't, I would not in that moment tell them that they were stupid. And one thing I know for sure is that Jesus is a way better friend than I am. So let's hear that differently. The stranger says to them, Oh, you guys, you are hurting so much, you don't even remember what you've heard before. Maybe the stranger is also a follower of Jesus and Cleopas and Mary have just never met him because he knows things. He reminds them that Jesus had said he would undergo great suffering and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he also said everything written about the Son of Man and the prophets will be accomplished and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon and they will flog him and they will kill him and on the third day he will rise again. And even that same morning, the angels encouraged the women, remember, he told you, the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. The answer was already there. Cleopas and Mary could have seen this coming seven miles away. But this highly intelligent and patient stranger goes further, laying out the whole Old Testament and showing how it points to Jesus. Now, obviously, we are in on the secret, right? We know who this stranger is. But this story is so good because Cleopas and Mary still don't know who this stranger is. Question for you. What is the area in your life where God is absolutely at work and you just don't recognize it yet? We don't know how long this conversation lasts, but it takes at least two hours to walk seven miles. They arrive at Emmaus, and the stranger starts to keep going. But Cleopas and Mary have that quick, silent conversation with their eyes that can only be done by couples who've been together for a really long time. Should we? Yes. Okay. No, and out loud they say, no, friends, stay with us. Yes, of course, we insist. And this is a bit risky because they've been on vacation for a week. The bathroom is not clean. Nobody knows where they put the sheets for the couch. And y'all know there ain't nothing in the fridge when you get home from vacation. But they pull together whatever food they have. So we have some peanut butter and some tuna and some bread and some Doritos and Diet Coke. Despite their meager resources, Cleopas and Mary choose hospitality and just you watch what happens. Question for you. Where have you bought into the lie that what you have is not enough for God to use? Because here comes the miracle. It is the pattern for the Eucharist slash communion slash the Lord's Supper. The pattern that Luke's audience would already recognize. Jesus takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. 
These are the actions of the host of the house. This is Mary's job or Cleopas's job, not the stranger's job. But Jesus does it because this is what Jesus always does when he feeds people. At the feeding of the multitude at the Last Supper, someone else provides the food and Jesus becomes the gracious host at all our tables. This is just an ordinary meal, probably a less than ordinary meal. With a guest who until a couple hours ago was a stranger. This ordinary moment becomes an, an extraordinary encounter with the risen Christ. They take bread from the hand of the stranger and suddenly there's something about his eyes that reminds them of someone and the line of his nose and that slow, mischievous grin and holy Moses, it's Jesus! Cleopas and Mary leap from their seats, but he's vanished. Although they swear, they can hear that familiar chuckle. And with hearts that may just pound right out of their chest, they look at each other, speechless, for just a moment, and then they're both talking. Did you see that? Did you see him? Did you see him? Cleopas has tears running down his cheeks as he whispers over and over, I knew it. I knew it. I just knew it. And Mary is laughing in complete delight and astonishment because Mary always laughs at inappropriate times. And she looks at Cleopas and says, my heart was burning when he opened the scriptures to us. And all of a sudden, they're fine. Their grief is gone. Their confusion is gone. And they feel like so much joy and hope might just lift them right off the ground. Cleopas says, we have to go back to Jerusalem and tell the others. So practical Mary refills their water pouches and they cram the rest of that holy ordinary meal into their pockets and they rush back out on the road. It's late afternoon and they've already walked seven miles today, but it doesn't matter because they don't feel the least bit tired and they don't even think about the fact that they might be on the road after dark. If Jesus is alive, then anything is possible and everyone needs to hear it. When they rush breathless into the upper room in Jerusalem, they find everyone else in the same state of excitement. Peter has seen Jesus. The women got the message straight from angels, and Cleopas and Mary just had a two-hour conversation with him. And he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Jesus is alive, and everything is possible. Resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. Amen.